Hi and welcome to the recording of Colive Virtual Singapore Meetup. This meetup is hosted by Brian from Salto System and is made possible by Salto System. Enjoy the recording. And so the last part where co-living now uh, has an advantage is that it's supported by in an ecosystem. Uh, an ecosystem of organizations such as CoLive or CoLiving Hub, um, of you know magazines or media such as CoLiving Insights, uh, JLL has been published uh, several publications on the topic of CoLiving, and with all of that, it's basically uh, to summarize it, CoLiving 2.0 was really about satisfying individual needs. Uh, what I mean with that is uh, there's operational excellence now in the industry. Uh, operators are being acknowledged. Uh, it's not hard for them anymore to. Uh, get in touch with investors, um, but it needs to level up. And the reason why we'll level up is because right now, co-living is mostly satisfying like individual needs such as safety. Um, and it will move to co-living 3.0, which will be about fulfilling collective needs. And when I talk collective needs, uh, what I mean with that is that uh, topics such as the environment, uh, focusing more on envi environmental sustainability. Uh, the other topic is community building. A lot of operators have a very top-down approach on what community means. Um, but it's not in every co-living space that you actually find that feeling of community. Uh, co-living will also have to uh, tackle one issue and that's long-term adaptability. Um, what I mean of that is we go through different phases of, in life, right? being singled and having, being coupled, potentially having kids, having the kids move out, becoming a senior. Our housing right now is not adaptable to those changing needs. Um, potentially co-living uh, could solve that. And of course, not to forget the local and neighborhood empowerment and government cooperation. So this is where co-living is going to head. And there have been initiatives in each of those areas, but they're not mainstream. Um, and so while I believe that co-living 2.0 is about creating the infrastructure for innovation, co-living 3.0 will, will be about the innovation itself. Uh, and I want to highlight a few examples of what type of innovation we can have. Uh, one is introducing the, the notion of cluster sizes. Uh, like real estate so far hasn't focused on what is the ideal size of people that can live together in order to create genuine community that is diverse and at the same time still intimate. And Connor is going gonna, is gonna to dig into those numbers. Um, there's another question around also how do we choose the right audience? Uh, what is the common denominator? Is it simply that you have the desire to live in a community or should we narrow it down up to like concrete interests and passions or activities that members are doing? Uh, and then the last big question, I think, for the years to come is going to be, what is the approach for community building? Uh, and uh, this is a little scheme that I drafted. And what you're seeing is that most operators or hotels have a top-down approach, meaning that they create the events. They're saying on Tuesday, we have a margarita cocktail night, and on Thursday, we have like samba sessions. Um, and that creates activities for members, but it's more in the entertainment approach. Um, the way that I hope that COVID is going to move towards is towards the facilitation of systems, meaning in a facilitation approach, the role of the operator is not to create events, not to create certain values or a culture, it is to enable it. It's to co-create it with its members to understand what are their needs and how can the space and the people serve them. And so uh, with that, another few um, events that are going to happen, most probably first, uh, 
uh, co-living is going to suffer from bad press. And we started seeing that already, the press becoming more critical, also around, um, around well-being, individual well-being, um, around operational excellence as well. And I think it's going to also help to then differentiate the, the co-living spaces that are going to innovate and those that, that aren't. Uh, the notion of co-ownership is also heavily being discussed, but not implemented yet. Uh, which is going to be the first co-living space that might offer its tenants to have a part in the stake of the real estate of the company. Uh, and the term co-living will also most probably going to um, be uh, implemented or adopted by our dictionary. Uh, the same thing has been happening to co-working. That's why maybe you saw on the slides that I didn't use co-living because I believe that the term eventually will be called co-living without a hyphen. Um, and the, the last one... One other thing is uh, we're going to see whether there's going to be a crash similar to WeWork. Um, and actually living in a post-WeWork world, um, one big shift that we've, seeing, we've been seeing with co-living operators is how they've been moving away from the traditional leasing model to a revenue share model. And trying to push managerial agreement above master leases when now they uh, contract with buildings. So leaving you with all of that, um, I personally believe that at the end, co-living is a human experience and it's the quality of human interactions that will define its long-term success. And so I'm really happy now to uh, yeah, bring Connor on stage to talk about how we could, uh, how we could foster those human interactions. Uh, thank you. And I'm looking forward to discussing those ideas with, with all of you soon. Excellent, Key. Excellent, as always. Thank you. All right, see if I can figure out this screen share here. Okay. I think we're good to go here. All right, we will uh, hop right in if everybody can hear me. Um, yes, okay, yeah, so perfect, perfect. Uh, so today we're going to go over um, what I see as one of the, I guess, kind of biggest perceived dilemmas in the co-living industry, um, and we'll get right into the weeds on a, in, in a lot of it, uh, but it's typically looking at uh, community versus scalability. Uh, so first, I'd like to give a shout out uh, to all the, uh, the folks that attended the first Singapore co-live meetup. This was back when um, people were meeting up in person, <laughs> the glory days, um, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, have, have another meetup here soon. Yeah, so just a little bit about myself. Um, um, so yeah, so I, I just finished up my MBA um, in Kuala Lumpur, um, and I've been doing global uh, co-living research uh, for, for the past year um, and really, really digging into the industry, uh, and then also just joined the co-live team uh, as head of content. Yeah, so here's our kind of agenda for the day. Um, so first, we're going to kind of go over the dilemma. Um, so we'll go over the different operator models, um, and then community and scalability. So why are they important? Um, and you know, why, why is this a dilemma in the first place? Um, then we'll go over uh, potential solutions, um, looking at design thinking and user experience design um, and how that leads to uh, multi-tiered communities um, and how spatial design can enable those multi-tiered communities. Okay, so the actual dilemma, here we go. All right, um, so I guess I wanna start out by saying I, I'm, I'm not looking to offend anybody on the call. <laughs> This is mostly just kind of like the perceived, I guess, kind of um, dilemmas that we've seen. And typically when, when, when we're looking at community versus scalability, um, we're looking at smaller operators versus larger. Um, so for a lot of reasons that we're gonna cover, when you have a smaller amount of people, members, tenants, um, 
you are able to capture this magic of community in, in, in a lot of those spaces that you're not able to um, necessarily at, at, at some of the larger buildings. Now, of course, that's a generalization. There are some small co-living places I've seen that don't have the best community, and there's some large places that have phenomenal community. Uh, but just in general, uh, that's kind of what I've seen in the industry, um, and we will go into the reasons uh, why that is the case. Um, yeah, so just real quick looking at the co-living operator models. Um, so on the left-hand side, we have some of the small operators. Um, these are pictures I took when I was traveling around the world, going to a lot of different co-living operators. Um, the, the top left is in San Diego, um, and that is at a place called Living Q. Uh, and then the bottom left is in Bali. Um, horrible place to go. Nobody go there. <laughs> um, just kidding. Obviously, it was fantastic. Um, at a place called Hustler's Villa. Um, and then in, in, in the top right, with uh, complete with a ping pong table and pool table, um, is the We Live location um, literally on Wall Street in, um, in Manhattan, which recent news, I think they actually might be looking at um, shutting down that part of the business, which um, who knows if that will come to fruition, but I saw an article a few days ago that that might be the case. Um, and then the bottom right is looking at Star City, um, which is an operator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, and I think they're actually going to um, Barcelona here soon, which is pretty exciting. Um, but in general, when, when we're looking at the smaller operators, um, it's more of the dinner table community, right? So looking at that picture on the bottom left, um, having the smaller amount of folks, you all almost automatically um, become closer to one another. Um, and then looking at some of the larger sizes, um, you know, you can certainly still have that community, um, but there's certainly some challenges that some of the smaller operators don't have. Yes. All right. So we'll jump into some of the social science here. I'm sure some of you that have been involved in the co-living industry for a while um, are certainly familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's something that the industry loves. Um, and I think it makes sense because it's a really simplified way um, to look at, you know, what the basic human needs are and kind of how they like stack up next to one another, right? So it starts off with our, you know, the most basic needs, food, water, shelter, uh, and goes all the way up to self-actualization, right? So when we're looking at traditional living solutions, what part of the pyramid that they're looking to fulfill um, really, you know, from castles and caves all the way to, you know, modern living solutions today, um, they really focus on just these bottom two tiers. Uh, but when we look at what co-living can provide, um, that can really bump us up to, to the next level um, and actually facilitate these belongingness needs. Um, so when, when we're asking why is community important, I think the obvious answer is that it's providing a basic human need that, that all of us need in our lives. And then how does community happen? How do we take these four strangers, these four people on the top, and then you know, have them all come together as part of a community? Um, when I've chatted with co-living founders, you know, residents at a lot of these places, community facilitators, um, what they mention is you can't force it. It's, it's, it's more of facilitating community rather than creating it, right? So it happens locally, it happens organically. Um, typically it happens in smaller groups. Um, and then one of the um, community facilitators that I was chatting with mentioned that kind of when comparing it to typical urban apartments, um, community happens around a dinner table, not in an elevator. All right, so then looking at why scalability is important, right? So um, looking at the impact that a smaller operator can have, um, I think a lot of folks in the co-living industry get into it because they love this community aspect, right? It's how can we create this phenomenal living environment and have a positive impact on people's lives? Um, and so even, even those operators, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at maybe having an impact on, you know, a handful of folks, right? 
But if you can scale, not only is it more economically feasible, um, but you can actually have so much of a larger impact, right? So you can really take the you know impact that you'll have on these people's lives and really blow it out of the water by orders of magnitude, right? Okay, so this is a business school slide. It's something that I get excited about and <laughs> total total nerd out about. Um, but I think it's important to discuss as far as looking at the actual economic side, um, how does scalability happen, right? And so it's the whole idea of economies of scale, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, but the general idea is that if I'm making 10 pencils here in the US and I'm shipping it to somebody who just bought that, um, I'm paying that shipping cost almost no matter the quantity, right? So if I ship 10 pencils or 1,000 pencils or 10,000 pencils, there's some fixed costs that are gonna stay the same. Um, but when you have more quantity, the average cost per unit is gonna go down. So with, with co-living and, and when we're thinking about real estate um, with, with um, size of buildings, if I have a 10 person house and I have a community facilitator and, and I hire them as an operator and I'm paying them a salary, or if I have 100, you know, you can probably still facilitate that community with only one person, but your average, um, you know, kind of price per um, resident just goes like drops really far down. Then when you actually use that savings, then you can go and build more um, co-living units, right? So it kind of is a cycle um, that is very important if we want, you know, co-living to have the global impact that we all believe that it can. Okay, so this kind of comes back, bring it back. So pick one, community or scalability, right? Um, well, actually, there's a lot of thinkers and experts in the field that I've been able to chat with um, and, and, and read some kind of um, papers that psychologists and anthropologists have put out there. And I really think that you can have both. Um, so without further ado, we will get into some of the solutions. Uh, so first, I just want to chat about, in general, um, looking at innovation, right? So modern design thinking, and uh, one of my favorite um, um, design firms and one of the biggest in the world is IDEO. And they have this phrase, how might we, right? And so it's kind of thinking, how might we create a better experience for phones? Apple's response was, we're going to create the iPhone. How can we create a better taxi experience? Rideshare apps like Uber have tackled that. And then I'm a huge space guy as well. Like, I think, you know, SpaceX being able to create the reusable rocket is one of the best, you know, human inventions that we've ever had. Um, but it is really surprising to me that, you know, despite all this progress that we've had in the 21st century, for me and for, I think, humans in general, one of the most important parts of your lives is where you live. Um, so it is, we are well overdue um, to, to apply this kind of innovation and design thinking towards how might we create a better living experience, right? Um, and so specifically for, for our talk today, we're going to look at how might we create a better living experience that can, one, facilitate community, but at the same time, scale easily, right? Um, and so some of the uh, co-live, I guess, kind of life-enhancing design elements here, um, kind of looking at what co-live can bring to the table, or what co-living can bring to the table, and how we can create a better living experience for the 21st century. We're looking at engagement, you know, kind of how can we create that um, interaction, that community, looking at audience, so how can we create kind of, uh, you know, a, a community with shared values, and then looking at design, how can we create, you know, actual architectural um, design in order to facilitate all of these great living things you want, right? So today we're going to focus on these two. Um, as you know, the next few months go on, I certainly hope to produce a lot of content on all three of these. Um, but for for time's sake, we're going to look at these two today. Um, so engagement. So looking at how might we you know create communities with human nature in mind. So we're going to dive down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. 
Um, but I think it's really interesting stuff. Uh, and hopefully you guys will get a little bit out of it. Um, so Robin Dunbar um, was a British anthropologist. Um, and he has created these models um, and kind of looking at these social layers. And one of the things that you might know from him is Dunbar's number. Um, so that is 150. And so the general idea there is he has, has put out there and it's been well received by a lot of the psychology community is saying that the, the human brain has a limit on the size of, on, on the number of relationships that we can maintain at one time. Um, and so his kind of uh, theory that he's put out there is that it's 150. Um, some of the things that aren't as well known are these other layers here, right? So if we look at, you know, 5, 15 to 20, 45 to 50, his idea is that when, when we look at this center ring, right, these are our relationships that are the closest. It's our, you know, best friends, it's our immediate family members. Then when we go to a larger ring, it's looking at maybe some of our close friends, maybe some of our colleagues. Um, when, when we get up to the 50 level, these are people we, we might see, you know, once a month, run, run into in the community. And then in this larger 150 is the maximum that a human being can possibly, you know, have meaningful relationships, right? So you're probably thinking, okay, this sounds great, but like, where's the proof? Um, and so Dunbar's done a ton of research that if you're looking for quarantine reading to do when you're bored at home, I would totally dive into this. It's really interesting stuff. Um, but he's looked at a lot of different examples. Um, one has been hunter-gatherer societies. Um, so a lot of anthropologists have gone in and found evidence um, and, and really estimated that a lot of these early human tribes, you know, they've, they've kind of come at like, you know, 150 to 200. And once you get bigger than that, they've actually, you know, split into different tribes, right? Looking at military organizations all the way from, you know, the Roman military to World War II, um, company sizes will typically be around 150. And then they'll be broken down into subgroups of 50 or even 10 to 15. Um, two of my favorite ones are Dunbar and some of his colleagues actually looked into phone records, uh, six billion calls um, in an unnamed European country. And this was in the early 2000s when we all still made phone calls. Um, and they actually found that there were similar numbers where you had these close core group of people, maybe five or six that you called a lot. Um, and then maybe a, a, a larger group looking at 15 to 20, right? Um, and then as well, looking at holiday cards. So they examined um, a few towns in the UK, and they found that these numbers actually hold true today um, when looking at when you're sending out Christmas cards and, and, and the such, right? Um, so then looking at, okay, what does this mean for co-living, right? Um, and so basically, I think this couldn't be more important for co-living if we're trying to create a community-based living solution for the 21st century, right? We should totally base it in the science of how humans connect with one another. Um, and so it's kind of looking at where enabling these community tiers is based off of this science, right? So one of the um, companies that's done a great job at it is Hamlet. Um, and I, don't, I, I think some of you may have been on the co-live call, um, um, the Germany one um, in April and um, Gaetan, who I believe is on this call as well, um, gave kind of his kind of view and Hamlet's view on how they create community and, and what levels of community they're looking to focus on. Um, and so their numbers are 6, 15, and 30, right? And this really makes sense when, when you think about a larger co-living building, right? You might have the unit that will be around four to six people. Then you have maybe this, this cluster model uh, that, that, that you mentioned as well, maybe looking at three units that might be on the same floor or a part of the building. And then maybe if it's a 50-person building, looking at this larger, you know, third, third or four, or even fourth layer of 150. So with that in mind, bringing it back, if we are able to take this, you know, kind of social science apply it to this, you know, kind of cluster model, 
basically being able to create this small community in larger co-living buildings. So as you can see with my expertly crafted graphic here, I'm certainly not gonna get a job as a graphic designer, but um, anyhow, uh, looking at the smaller, you know, kind of community on the left, this is looking at the smaller operators. And then as a co-living company grows, as the buildings get bigger, maintaining that kind of core of, you know, four to six people in a unit, whatever that number is, but, you know, intentionally making the communities to kind of have these layers there that match up with how our brains are literally hardwired. So now real quick, we'll just go over some of the spatial design, uh, things that I've been able to chat with a bunch of, you know, um, architectural experts that are really thinking about how can we, you know, apply a lot of these kind of community layers and, and a lot of our, you know, kind of spatial design theories um, into making, you know, like communities that are designed around well-being. Um, and so more excellent designs here. Um, so looking at how can we combine the idea of the, you know, Dunbar's, you know, kind of social layers with an actual building, right? And so the idea is this cluster model. Um, so again, pretty, pretty crude drawing here. <laughs> um, but the, the idea here is that if, if we think about each of these kind of black squares of the unit, um, and then we're thinking about a cluster that might be two to three units, right? So it's that same, you know, kind of second level that is looking at, you know, like around maybe 10 to 15, 20 people. Then you're looking at clusters of clusters, right? So kind of applying that model to an even bigger one, and then maybe even out to 150 or more people that are living in that single building. But the main takeaway here is no matter how big the building is, as long as we focus on creating communities at these different levels, um, in theory, we should be able to pull it off, right? Um, I think uh, maybe Sophie can, um, I guess, give some kind of um, uh, insight as far as putting this into practice, because this is the easy part, what I've done, making a few slides on the theories and the ideas, but obviously putting it into practice is extremely, extremely difficult. And I think, you know, putting these ideas and these, you know, kind of spatial design models into practice will be, you know, one of the challenges that co-living 3.0 has to face for sure. Uh, but I think we're, we're, we're at that level of, of being able to push things forward, right? Um, so here you can see this is something that I did not design, obviously. Um, this was by um, Natasha Reed, um, who is uh, the founder of Matterspace Soul, which is an architectural design firm in London. Um, and there's a lot of these firms out there, Well Studio, um, Space and Pepper, um, out of Berlin, Conscious Co-Living, I think it's putting some of the best material in the industry out there, um, that are really starting to think about how can we design spaces better for well-being? How can we design spaces better for, you know, to facilitate community and human interaction? So I guess just to, just to kind of wrap it up, I think um, I'm, I'm very, very sold on the co-living community, as you can probably tell, I love talking about it. Um, but I think, you know, especially on Fridays, we need to, you know, give ourselves a pat on the back, and, you know, sometimes. And I think um, that everybody that's in the co-living industry, I think we're tackling this question right here which I would argue is one of the most important questions that we can tackle in the 21st century of how can we you know, use our skills, use our talents, use our new knowledge um, in order to create life enhancing living experiences um, for people across the globe in the 21st century. Um, so thank you guys, this was um, awesome. And I think we'll kind of launch into the, uh, the panel discussion here. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, um, Guy as well. Uh, wow, you know, there's so much to uh, kind of understand about uh, co-living. 
Um, I I just want to kick off with uh, uh, Sophie. Are you? Um, you can also un unmute your mic uh, because uh, you're part yes. of our panel. Thank you. Um, so I just want to kick off with a, a really interesting question um, because if you're designing a new co-living space now, you probably can incorporate what Connor has just mentioned about this smaller cluster. But co-living, like co-working, it's it's really about community. Everything is about community. So with COVID-19, particularly the social distancing measures that have to be put in place. Uh, so how will a co-living operator as an, or, or maybe as an industry um, evolve immediately post COVID-19? Now, the second part of the question is, how can an operator then adjust his or her business model quickly to adapt to this changing environment? Do you want me to take the question, Ryan? Maybe, Sophie, Sorry. you want to go ahead? <laughs> sure. One experience, and then I can add a few examples afterwards. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess, Brian, you initially linked the question kind of to some of the principles that Connor was describing about sort of spatial design. I think, in a way, it's going to be difficult to address the immediate implications of COVID in, in spatial design because it's, it's for many co-living projects, especially ones that are launching in the short term, it's often to do with repurposing existing real estate assets. And so the, the notion of designing the, the perfect co-living space is much more challenging because it requires a project that you're really building from the ground up. But I guess in the short term, uh, to address the COVID challenge, I see technology actually playing a, a much bigger role in, in what co-living operators can do. So, um, I mean, for us, it's we've really kind of had to challenge ourselves and, and become innovative in how we use our technology in a way that I think we were kind of doing anyway, but this has really pushed us to do it faster. Um, and in a way it's also helped us because it's forced our customers to adopt new technologies as well. So to give a very tangible example, things like doing um, virtual viewings of properties, of course, one of the more like high risk activities that we do um, in the real estate space is obviously showing prospective tenants um, a space before they move in. It obviously is an opportunity for lots of people to come into contact with each other and we're letting people into someone's home to view it so we've moved to a program of doing kind of fully virtual viewing using both um, VR tools um, video calls and things like that and we've seen it was it was something we were doing anyway because uh, it kind of made sense the world was moving in that direction but in a way um, the, the COVID context has, has enabled a much better adoption of those types of technologies. And I suspect that those are the, some of the changes that we may see enduring even beyond, uh, beyond the COVID pandemic. Wow, nice. I'd love to add something to that. Um, I, you know, you talked about, uh, first of all, like the design changes, right? How is COVID going to influence our, our, the future of architecture and design? One fear that, for example, I had was, uh, because of COVID that real estate developers, especially for bigger constructions, will now go more towards micro units because it's easier to manage and instead of going towards that cluster size. So there was a fear I had. Um, and I'm actually now after talking to, to developers and working with them, it feels like it's actually not too much happening. Uh, a part of the original intention was already to, to create micro units. 
Uh, I think maybe one way that it can, that real estate can also adapt is for example, having more adaptability uh, within, um, within a space. So in corridors or in, in terms of clusters, uh, concretely speaking, for example, right now I'm working on a project where we're going to have clusters of 18 people, but you can, but the wall between the kitchen and the living room can be like removed uh, or added. So that could, for example, could be adaptable towards like new COVID scenarios. We can only have 10 people, for example, maximum uh, hanging out in, in living spaces. Right. Um, and then the other uh, big meta changes, what I'm seeing is like first, um, I think I think rural co-living, I mean, has been struggling a, a lot recently, and especially for because it was short term. But I think rural co-living is going to grow again because people will have will be able to like uh, work more remotely, uh, will have a desire to connect with nature if they've been in cities, uh, and especially also because um, I think that rural co-living will go more towards long-term um, services, or at least having more people who are desiring long-term like uh, co-living spaces that are outside the city. Um, and the second thing adding to that is there's going to be most probably a lot of individuals, uh, private individuals that want to turn their home uh, into a co-living space. I'm seeing this like popping up, especially after this pandemic where people have been isolated and they're like, hey, I have this big home with like five rooms and I'd really love to turn into something. So I think individuals will pick that up, uh, the trend too. And lastly, just one note on, on tech and IoT. Uh, here we can, uh, especially I've been thinking a lot about IoT and um, it's also how to manage a healthy community. And it can be read as simple. So imagine certain things that could be implemented in a co-living space, such as um, a, a smart, um, a smart uh, trash that indicates you whenever the trash is full. Uh, simply so that you know as an operator, if like a trash is full like, you know, every day in one apartment, probably there might be something you know, you know, going on, or people not taking care of it or, or certain things inside. So uh, that's just one example. Another one could be you could even install infrared cameras that are not filming, but just measuring the level of interaction within a space. Uh, there's a lot of, of things that can be done and there's a lot of also like those topics need to be talked about in terms of privacy. Um, but I think there's a lot of innovation in terms of tech. So, yes. Yeah. So, well, if you have not factored in technology right from the beginning where you, 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 you know, you start your co-living, um, then cost becomes a factor if you were to bring in some uh, technology later on down the road. Um, and then it has to be something that is um, retrofitted, easily put in, rather than you have to tear down everything and put in a new infrastructure. So cost then play uh, a significant part in operating the, the co-living. So Connor, I'm not sure if you're studying, um, you know, in your, in your, in your research, um, there's this, cost factor that um you know it's it's provision for yeah so like specifically looking at the technology side or yeah 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 so i think um when i've been chatting with a good amount of folks i guess as far as you know okay we we want to you know have have some kind of technology platform whether it's uh we're going to design a mobile app or we're going to design you know all this kind of stuff in-house or, or we'll partner with somebody obviously that stuff is not free <laughs> Um, and so I think you certainly need to, you know, factor that into the, the, the overall equation. Um, but I think what's, what's even more important is, you know, how can you leverage technology to be able to, you know, kind of have, have some cost savings maybe in some other verticals, right? So when, when, when we're kind of looking at the overall umbrella of co-living and you have the, you know, kind of technology vertical and you have the community and you have the spatial design, you know, making sure that all of those are able to kind of seamlessly work together. Um, 
is 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 great in theory. I I think again in practice it's something extremely difficult to do. Um, but I think as long as you're integrating that technology into other pieces of of the overall co-living business, um, I think it can start to make sense on a um, on a financial front, right? Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe Sophie, as far as you know, looking at technology at Cove, uh, might have more of an operator's perspective. But that's kind of what I've seen thus far. Thank you. So Sophie, have you know, right on the onset, um, do you have a lot of technology factor into? Um, I, I guess with uh, COVID nineteen, there it's a, um, added requirements, you know, to segregate the you know the, the people in the community. Um, so how much of a technology would you have factored in right from the beginning when you mm. <clears throat> excuse me when you plan your space um, and how can you then uh, make use of this technology now to fulfill the requirements that maybe some government might have yeah so i mean i think technology is critical um, for co-living and i guess we would think about it in three areas of the business. So um, one, I think it's already been a relevant, a relevant topic to this discussion is around community. Um, and it can certainly play a role. I don't think it, it's necessarily the, the most important aspect of your community, but it can certainly help to enhance some of your, your community. The second uh, is around just the, I think, everywhere in the world and in whatever format co-living is is considered a kind of innovative um, approach to real estate and so and given the kind of customer group that we cater to there's an expectation that we provide a level of um, service that's easy and hassle-free and technology plays a, a hugely important role in that and then i think thirdly as co-living operators we also cater predominantly to a kind of budget conscious um, customer who's looking for affordable housing solutions and so technology can play a really important role to to drive efficiencies in the business uh, it's something that the real estate industry or the the traditional real estate industry uh, typically hasn't done so well um, and us as innovators in the space can do a lot with technology to really improve how we handle operations how we handle um, tenant onboarding and things like that which ultimately allow us to pass on cost benefits to, to our end user and consumer so that's kind of how we think about technology and I would say that I don't think COVID has um, necessarily caused us to do anything differently but I do think that it's probably accelerated some of our work streams and like I said in a way I mean Overall, I'd say co-living has proven to be a pretty resilient um, industry within um, the COVID pandemic. And I think you hear a lot of skepticism from people saying that the people's fear about, uh, about COVID is, is kind of likely to deter them from co-living, but we're, we're not really seeing that play through. Actually, uh, in many ways, what Guy was saying is true. People have felt so isolated during this pandemic that some of the benefits of co-living are really playing out. So, um, but, but yeah, I don't think COVID has necessarily caused us to do anything differently, but what it has done is, is like I said earlier, probably driven the adoption of some of our technologies, which actually in the long run can help us all as an industry um, become more tech focused because, you know, ultimately these things are successful when consumer adoption is high. 
Uh, so if consumer adoption is accelerating as a result of virtual things becoming the new normal, then, uh, then that's the direction that, that we will go in naturally. Great. Um, are there any questions from the floor? You can uh, either send in via the chat or you can uh, probably un unmute yourself and uh, ask the question. Don't be shy. <laughs> Me, Sophie, I, I will ask you. Um, uh, this is a question for Sophie in particular. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about actually co and mm -hmm. uh, where the idea came from. I know uh, you have two, I think, or three co-founders, if I'm not wrong, when we chatted last time. Uh, yeah, just wanted to understand a bit more about that whole concept of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have two co-founders. Uh, we're like the, although we founded a business here in Singapore, we're like the European Union of founders because we're a French, a Brit, and an Italian, although actually, no longer European Union. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the three of us, uh, we came together in, in Singapore because we're, I suppose in some senses, we're a typical co-living group of customers. We're, um, we've always been geographically very mobile. Between the three of us, we've lived in, um, I think we worked out 29 different rental uh, properties in 13 different cities, um, all over in, in covering most continents. So we had huge personal experience of the, the kind of trials and tribulations as a young professional or student trying to find affordable, good quality accommodation, um, especially when you're coming into a city and you don't necessarily have a ready network of friends. Um, and I guess it was over that shared experience that we got together and, and decided that we wanted to do something about it. And I think the co-living, our business was founded in 2018. The co-living uh, movement, if you like, was already, was already underway, but still, um, and still relatively niche. Um, and so, yeah, we decided there was, there was a big opportunity. Um, and the three of us are kind of settled here in Southeast Asia. And we saw particularly an opportunity in Southeast Asia with a huge population of, of millennials, um, a lot of them moving into big urban centers. Uh, in a lot of these urban centers, really poor supply of, of quality, um, affordable housing. And so uh, we felt there was a lot to do. So we um, were currently present in Singapore, which is where we launched. And then we just uh, earlier this year launched in Jakarta um, as our second city. Cool, thank you. And what's your opinion on, sorry, I'll carry on. <laughs> I'll pick yeah. your brain while I can. Yeah, yeah. And what is your opinion with regard to the size of every unit and every co-living space? Mm. Yeah, I think I, in a way, I feel like the industry is moving a little more towards a, a consensus on this. So um, obviously, Connor and um, Guy shared, shared their thoughts earlier um, and also referenced uh, the, the Hamlet approach. And I think that is, um, in our view, the, the right approach as well. I mean, you could debate about the specific numbers, but ultimately, I think we... In a way, when you speak to people who aren't so familiar with co-living and you say the word community, I think for some reason everyone assumes you mean like these massive social parties uh, where you just usually it involves alcohol and loads of young people having a good time, which, okay, maybe that's a certain aspect of community. But to me, that's 
almost one of the less important parts of community. Like actually, if you really, if you really spend time looking into what a community is, it is about forging these close and meaningful connections and ultimately feeling part of something that's bigger than you. And I totally agree with the philosophy that that starts and is probably most important in your sort of immediate um, network. So having these clusters, if you do have the luxury of designing ground up um, co-living buildings, I think is, is absolutely the, the right approach. Thank Ooh. you. I also, I'll carry on. <laughs> Should I just carry on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, I mean, if anyone from the public wants to, from other attendee, please just, you know, you can unmute yourself and ask directly. We are very, so I sent a question before. I'm trying to find it again. It was about, um, it was about the co-owning that you were talking about, Guy, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to understand from the three of you in general, obviously, you know, uh, Sophie, you are also uh, an operator. What's your idea on that because I think it's a bit of a mix between co-housing and co-living and uh, I just wanted to understand where do you see this side going because I, I something that I hear quite often recently mm. yeah um, well first I think let's um, let's uh, let's make sure that so for, for me personally co-living is whenever you have more than two biologically unrelated people who share a space uh, under one roof. Uh, Co-housing includes also when you have like several houses next to each other, but if we have several houses next to each other, my, in my personal definition, that's not co-living. Um, so I don't think that the notion of ownership changes anything to whether it's co-living or co-housing, um, but I guess like co a lot of co-housing developments are co-owned, right? So that's, that's probably like the relationship. The, with co-living, it's been, um, I mean, there are certain, of course, there are certain there are spaces that are run as like co-ops or that are co-owned. But with co-living operators, as we understand them, especially from the for-profit industry, um, I haven't seen like real co-ownership models. Um, now, the reason why, why co-ownership, um, one of the main reasons is because if you want to feel like it's your space, uh, you need the notion of ownership. So ownership can come in different forms. It can be having the ownership of being able to decide which events are happening in your space, right? So that's, that's community involvement. It can be also certain types of financial ownership. So some spaces, they have a budget for the community that, that they can vote on and, uh, and put onto, you know, buy a fridge or host a specific event, whatever suits their needs. So these are like entry levels of co-ownership, but like co-ownership in terms of like having shares in company or having shares in real estate, um, I haven't seen it yet. I'm really, really, really curious to know if anybody has. Uh, there were certain talks, for example, from one co-living space in Los Angeles to turn a percentage of the company into, um, uh, into, into shares for a co-op that then would be, like you, uh, that would be um, run by the, by the members that have stayed in the co-living space, but it hasn't been concretized. I think one of the, the couple of reasons why it hasn't, been, it hasn't come out yet is because first, not the highest priority for co-living operators, saying there's a lot of legal burdens and issues to actually make this concrete and happen. Um, and third, I guess, because nobody has done it yet. And I guess if somebody would with, you know, and probably also share the template and the way that they do it, it might encourage others to do so. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a super interesting model. And, and ultimately, a lot of the, you know, I think we all talk a lot about community being one of the driving forces behind co-living, but there's also, you know, a lot of uh, 
um, economic reasons why people end up in in co-living and and actually the 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 group of the predominant segment who who enter into co-living it's because they for whatever reason are um, priced out of the purchase market and so being able to give um, this group of people the opportunity to kind of get a foot onto the the housing ladder if you like whilst whilst still living in rental accommodation I think is is a super relevant initiative but I agree with um, Guy that there are more like operational challenges in the short term with co-living still being a new space and being quite an operationally complex model anyway um, and and the co-ownership concept still being quite nascent as well uh, I think it, it might take some time before we see those two things coming together but there are yeah. many sort of other um, co-ownership so residential real estate co-ownership businesses emerging um, and I suspect that in in the next few years we'll probably see some coming together of, of these two concepts yes and also there's another question which is is it in the interest of the operator to to enable co-ownership for example um, I think it can be but yeah but I don't think like the ecosystem is is necessarily yet set up for the interests to be fully aligned. Mm -hmm. And I guess, and the question is also, certain co-living operators do not want to have people heavily involved or staying long term. Um, you know, a lot of co-living spaces appeal to people who come in for six to nine months. Certain operators have also higher prices, and they know like for them it's better to have four months instead of twelve, or instead of eighteen, or even twenty-four, which is really rare at this point. So I think the operators that are going to adopt it are going to be those that actually want to have residents in the long term across several years and potentially several decades if they are able to offer different types of, um, of living arrangements. Mm. I also think it, it becomes interesting when you, um, when you have co-living operators that play as part of a broader ecosystem of real estate. So if, yeah. for example, the... Um, co-ownership assets that that your co-living customers can build up over their time with you can then be converted into them transitioning maybe into their first family home um, or whatever that next step is after co-living I liked your chart Guy, where you sort of show the different age groups and how co-living fits if you think about the ecosystem as a whole in that sense having being able to kind of build up ownership um which you can then ultimately convert to the next step on that ladder i think is quite an interesting model but that requires co-living to become integrated more fully into the the overall real estate ecosystem and i don't think we're quite there yet so that's a that's yeah. an interesting comment from john um he said that i would add a fourth point to what he said i think co-living is designed um, for an average of about 10 months stay. So people are not interested in staying longer or co-owning. Uh, so I thought that's a really interesting comment. Uh, but there's a, there's a question from Ed Burke. Uh, Ed, if you could unmute yourself, uh, maybe you can ask that question. Sure thing. Uh, nice, to, nice to meet you. Um, so the point I wanted to make was... Um, uh, kind of about the evolution of co-living and purpose-built co-living. Purpose-built co-living is really sort of in the first generation at the moment. And some of the uh, operators have opted for, I, I call it a collective style model uh, after the collective in London, where people have self-contained suites and um, they may even have the kitchen in the suite itself. Um, 
which is sort of almost, I think, the opposite to the cluster model that um, I, I'm actually a particular fan of. That's my favorite form is a cluster model. So I was wondering, what do people think about this self-contained suite model? And do you actually think that that is the future? Is that the way the industry is going? Because some of the bigger uh, co-living developments um, seem to have adopted that suite model. But I would also then add, um, in light of the COVID-19 situation, um, in some of these self-contained suite models, you'd have situations where 20 or 30 people are sharing kitchens. And I'm not sure if that is tenable um, you know, anymore in light of the current situation. So I just thought I'd throw that out to, to people to see what you think. Amazing. You, curious, you want to take that? Yeah. Yeah. When I, I'm curious, when you say um, a self-contained suite, you may talk about micro units, so apartments of yeah. like maybe like 13 to 20 square meters with a kitchenette and potentially giving onto like also a shared space. Exactly. It could be it could be 13 to 20 square meters. You might have a little kitchenette, but it's really designed so that you're not going to be having e e eating your dinner in, in your unit. You're probably going to be in a larger kitchen, which would which are designed typically for 15 to even 20, 30, 40 uh, residents. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, well, uh, um, I mean, from what I've been seeing, like, first, there's definitely a trend off of micro units, right? Um, and also the question is also uh, starting when is it becoming co-living? So certain spaces, they put a lot of micro units and they have a shared rooftop, uh, potentially shared gym and call themselves co-living developments. Um, but then the, the other question is also, um, I think there's going to be a trend in micro units uh, because it does give people like a certain type of privacy. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think we're going to see other completely different trends, such as, for example, pods. Uh, which is also something that is uh, that is growing in certain areas, especially in California for some reason. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, whether it answers your thought. I, I think like the innovation around micro units is not whether we're going to have micro units, but it's going to be around how they are connected between each other. Because as you said, they're not sufficient to really have the full experience of living in there. Um, and so you know, are they going to be connected? I think the, the idea being. Exactly, as you say that, like, you can't really, you can, you can in a sense live in there. If you want to have your dinner in there, you can have your dinner in there. But they're sort of designed to try to encourage people to get out of the micro units into the larger shared living spaces. Now, some of these types of developments have actually got a massive amount of criticism in the Irish media. Um, um, and I think even yes. in the UK as well, uh, there, there have been some proposals that have got criticism there as well. So there has been criticism in the media. Um, like a feeling I have is um, like some of the micro units can be actually really good for couples, for young couples. I, I by the way, don't believe co-living is only for single people. I think it's also for couples because sometimes couples do actually want their self-contained units. Whereas... Uh, perhaps a mix a building where you have your clusters and then you also have some micro units as well um you know m m might be a good model but it'll be interesting was, to see how, how, just, it, how it plays out i was just going to say ed in in our experience i think that there isn't a one-size-fits-all model and and ultimately yeah. um in some ways, co-living does capture a broader demographic than people originally assume. And so I totally agree with your point around couples. Couples are quite a big part of actually our customer base. Um, and, and like I've said before, there are many reasons why people get into co-living. And depending on people's 
status, depending on people's reason for entering into co-living, they have different priorities and make different choices. So for some people, um, the, these suites, I think you called them micro suites might be, might be the right solution, but for other people who are, who have different criteria, it's, it's not the right solution. So ultimately I think it's about designing spaces that yes they're they're efficient yes they deliver the the right uh, balance of community versus scale but that you're still designing in there enough choice so that you can really cater to i mean ultimately if you want to scale we need to move away from thinking of co-living as a niche uh way of living in a community and start thinking about how do we enable co-living to cater to as broad a group as possible by offering um that kind of choice do you have yeah. any thoughts on, or sorry, um, the maximum number of people in kitchens? I'm wondering, will the COVID-19 crisis kind of result in even regulations in a sector to say, like, co-living operators aren't allowed to have, you know, X amount of people, which is whatever that number is going to be, to a kitchen? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I suspect that if there, if regulation does arise on these things, it, it won't necessarily be as a result of COVID. Um, I think, look, we're in the acute phase of a pandemic right now, so it's it's very front of mind. But I think ultimately, um, you know, I I hope that we're this isn't something that happens frequently, and ultimately, kind of memories aren't that long on these things. I think regulation is more likely to come in as a result of. Um, I'd say poorly executed co-living leading to, to significant problems with people's quality of life or access to facilities and things mm. like that. Yeah. I think that over time we will all start to develop the right design principles on kind of limits on how people can share space and share facilities and things like that. But our general sort of guiding principle right now is to, is to think from a consumer first perspective yep. um actually i really liked um connor talk, you referencing ideo and that sort of like consumer first design in your presentation because for for me one of the big shifts that co-living brings to the real estate space is a focus on the end user that has not been prevalent in real estate before. So typically um, the legacy real estate industry is very much centered around uh, designing for the investor. Um, and the risk with that model, when you start to get into kind of space efficient um, real estate design, which is what co-living ultimately is, is that you, you just get, you just compromise further and further and further on the consumer experience. And, you know, unfortunately, People are looking far too much at the kind of dollar per square foot metric and not enough at how does my user, how does my um, tenant actually use this space? And, and in a way, it doesn't take a, a huge amount of like complicated uh, thinking. You've just got to think practically like in a kitchen, if you have two fridges, how many people can realistically store a week's worth of food in two fridges? You know, it's definitely not. 70 people <laughs> so i've seen co-living spaces where you know kitchens have been designed almost with no thought about how practically they need to be used so i think the answer to to this challenge is is really learning from other industries that have done a great job on consumer first thinking and applying that properly to real estate and really kind of building consumer empathy when we think about designing our spaces yeah, I agree with that so, yeah, yeah. So, Connor, did you want to make a comment? 
because um, yeah, after this we're gonna we're gonna go into the breakout room. Uh, but we're gonna hang in, hang out here for a little bit um, after the breakout room. So maybe if you have extra questions, but I think Connor has a comment. Yeah, yeah. So Ed, when when you were mentioning as far as uh, you know, like looking at the you know kind of like micro units or other ways to kind of create privacy, one with with um, COVID in mind, but then as well with other you know kind of demographics such as couples um, that might want a higher privacy. Um, one of the coolest things I've seen recently is. Um, there's a there's an operator um, called CoHouse out in LA. It's a very small operator, um, but on the website it has this really cool design principle of trying to invert um, the typical order of of a living situation, right? So in a typical house, the order is you have a door, then it goes to the common area, then it goes to the passageway, then it goes to the room, right? So even if you want um, privacy, you you can't really have it because you go straight into the common area, right? But if you invert that order and you go from the door to the passageway and then that passageway goes to the certain rooms and also to the common area. It's kind of hard to do without visualizing, um, but the general idea is there's other ways to create privacy um, without just doing the micro units. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of kind of spatial design that's kind of coming on board as far as how can we create this privacy? How can we create, you know, people also enjoy having their own bathrooms. That, that's something that is uh, one of the biggest complaints typically. So I think there's a lot of, um, ways that we can create that privacy without necessarily doing the micro yeah for sure for sure and one, one comment on this too like there has been criticism for example especially in dublin right in ireland there had been like a lot of like people were yeah. protesting against um against the, the development that was proposed i guess one reason there was also a question of ratios um you know the the, the ratios like they even if they had cluster of 20 people like a cluster of 20 people was the space that five people usually need so there was a I think the, the ratios ran right, and so there was a lot of questioning around how is it actually going to impact the well-being of residents, even community. Um, so I guess, like, I guess new proposals, especially when there are better ratios, and 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 I guess those ratios need to be tested out too. There has not been much experimentation around that, so I'm really curious to see what's going to come out. Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, it's it's got very bad press in Ireland. It's almost I hate to say, it, but it's almost like a bad word. I mean, if you say co-living, I always say co-living, and and I can tell half the people that see my post, they probably think, God, I hate that guy. Why is he talking about co-living? But I'm trying to trying to educate people in Ireland that it's you know it. It can actually be a great thing if you're just trying to get people thinking about it in terms of community formation rather than in terms of people see it as an attempt by developers to make apartments, you know, 10% of the size of, the, of what they're supposed to be. That's the way they're sort of thinking about it. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a PR issue as well, to be honest. 100%. And it's like one thing, it's like bad press, right? It's definitely is, is one of the things that co-living has to deal with. Yeah. Now, it's interesting like, in a case like Ireland when it actually touches the culture and the public perception. Um, and so I guess with further ado, um, let's take just like five minutes to go into breakout room. And first of all, like, thank you all for, uh, for coming in and sharing your insights, Sophie, Connor. Uh, and thank thanks you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes. And uh, Great. let's give a big round of applause also for Brian and Sylvia for organizing this um, and uh, for being here. Thank you, guys.